Well, great to see you all 3D. 108 days of lockdown. Now, I know the media was saying it's 106, but two days before the official lockdown started, Gladys said, stay at home. And if you live with Cathy Stewart, you obey the law. So, so Cathy and I had 108 romantic dinners together in a row, which is why she says you're a hopeless romantic. Depends how you hear it. All right, let's get started. I've got a great uh, investment opportunity for you. Uh, people love movies, and I thought if we could get a whole lot of uh, video cassettes together with movies or TV series, and, and you could have them in a shop or a store, you could call it like video really easy or something, and people could come and rent the videos and then uh, uh, bring them back and return them. Uh, what do you reckon? Do you think we could... How would you like to invest your life savings in some video stores? Yeah? Uh, well, maybe not. You think, no, that is not a horse that I am going to get on. That horse is either dead or, well, at least it's sick. Um, <clears throat> now, of course I'm joking because that's the whole way history is gone. They're, no one's going to invest in videos, video cassette stores. But I wonder sometimes if you're a follower of Jesus, do you feel a little that way? That, that feeling that Christianity is declining in our country, uh, that the horse, well, if it's not dead, that maybe at least it's sick. Do you ever feel that way? Do you ever... I can understand why, that you, you might feel that way. Let me show you just a couple of examples of things that kind of may make you feel that way. For example, the average size of a church in Australia is less than 50 people. Now, there's some that are bigger, but half of them are 50 or below. That's a, that's a worry, but more of a worry is the age profile in our churches. The, the lightest blue line is the Australian population age profile. You can see it go, you know, in the, in the uh, decade age brackets. Uh, the dark blue line is the church attenders profile. Now, that is deeply concerning. If you're not into graphs and that sort of thing, let me at least show you with a couple of cartoons what the problem is, and that is if you get up that end, there's a reason those lines finish. And as I've said before, there are many churches around the country where I could be in the youth group. Now, it's not that funny, all right? Anyway, all right. Uh, what is, what's God doing? Uh, why... What's all this about? You know, is Christianity declining? How do we make sense of that, uh, etc.? All right, let me let me answer that. And this whole idea of living in a post-Christian society. Let me answer that by taking you back two thousand years to a historical event uh, in the first century, and actually not begin with the Gospels. Let me begin with a quote from Josephus. Now, Josephus was a first-century uh, Jewish historian, certainly not a Christian. But he records many events that uh, cross over with the Gospels, where the Gospels record the event and Josephus as well. The one I want to show you is King Herod, who was the son of the Herod mentioned in the Christmas stories, Herod the Great, this is Herod Antipas, has John the Baptist, who was a very popular prophet at the time, has John the Baptist arrested. And so Josephus writes this, now, when many others came in crowds about him, that's around John, for they were greatly moved or pleased by hearing his words, 
uh, Herod's paranoid, etc., Josephus tells us. Accordingly, John was sent as a prisoner out of Herod's suspicious temper to Machaerus, the castle I mentioned before. And so um, he used to be able to go as a tourist, but now uh, you can Google photographs of Herod's uh, kind of uh, hideaway fortress that overlooks the Dead Sea, Machaerus, or however it's pronounced properly. Why did Herod have him arrested? Well, Josephus focuses on the political aspect that Herod was worried about. The Gospels tell us the moral aspect that John uh, spoke to Herod about. But the bottom line is, John was the first real prophet in 400 years, and he stirred up huge interest. How did he stir up huge interest? Well, it was his message. His message was about a coming kingdom. So Matthew, in chapter 3, tells us what, uh, what John was preaching. Here it is. In those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, here's his message in a sentence, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Now, the kingdom of heaven, or the kingdom of God in the Gospels, uh, uh, why the kingdom of heaven? Did Matthew, Matthew's Gospel is written... Uh, to a predominantly Jewish audience. And so the Jewish people were very careful about saying the name of God. So Matthew says, Kingdom of Heaven. Uh, the other Gospels record Kingdom of God. It can be used completely interchangeably. The Kingdom of God or the Kingdom of Heaven is a theme that runs right through the Bible. And there's a promise as well that God, not, is, not only is God a king who judges justly, but one day God would send his great king to, be, to rule his kingdom. Now, What's he called? Well, you can call that the Messiah, meaning uh, in, in Hebrew, the Christ in Greek or the Anointed One in English. And so the kingdom of God runs through the Bible. It's talked about in two main ways in the Old Testament. It's talked about as a kind of a, a kingdom that would happen here on this earth, ruled by a great king like King David in the Old Testament. And so Jesus is called the Son of David. And there's also a kind of an end-of-the-world new creation idea as well. So in uh, the prophecy of, prophecy of Isaiah about 800 BC, uh, God through Isaiah says, See, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. And so, yeah, it'll be a kingdom ruled by God's king and eventually new heavens and a new earth, a whole new, a whole new start. And part of that will be the day of the Lord, which means God will come and judge. And God's people, God's friends will be saved, rescued, and God's enemies will be destroyed. And what that means, I don't know if you've thought through the implications of that, this kingdom of God idea means, in the Bible's view, the whole of history is moving towards a goal. It, it, it moves forward towards this goal, rather than like some of the Greek philosophy which had the world just go in endless kind of circles, or some of the Chinese philosophy where the world alternates between yin and yang, etc. Here's, here's what George Eldon Ladd, an American theologian, says about the kingdom of God. He says, The kingdom of God must not be understood merely as the salvation of certain individuals or even as the reign of God in the hearts of people. It, it is that, but it, it's more. It means nothing less than the reign of God over his entire created universe. The kingdom of God means that God is king and acts in history to bring history to a divinely directed goal. 
So people come to acknowledge God's king as their king, they enter the kingdom, but more than that, the whole of creation will be affected. And so John comes with a message, well, a baptism, a message to get ready for the coming king. John says this, so this is what Matthew tells us about John the Baptist. John said, I baptise you with water for repentance, turning around, coming back to God. But after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptise you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. So the coming one, the Messiah, the King, will bring judgment. He'll, he'll baptise God's people with God's spirit and baptise God's enemies with fire. And so John's expecting this kind of apocalyptic event, this tsunami of God's judgment. And John, as he expects that, points very clearly to Jesus as the coming one, as the king. And then John's arrested, as we saw. John's arrested by Herod and put in prison. And then Jesus goes public. Jesus begins to preach and teach and heal, etc. And here's the strange thing. John the Baptist, the great prophet, has second thoughts. And he, he thinks, have I, have I jumped on the wrong horse? basically. And so John sends, in the passage that Bianca read for us in Matthew 11, John sends his disciples, as John's in prison, he sends his disciples to ask Jesus what we might think is a strange question. When John, who, Matthew chapter 11 verse 2, when John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him, are you the one who is to come? Or should we expect someone else? Now that's a fair enough question because if John had been reading his Old Testament, part of what the Messiah would do is to proclaim freedom for the captives, the release from darkness for the prisoners. And John's waiting for the kind of the, the great apocalypse tsunami thing to come or at least a political military kingdom. And what's Jesus doing? Well, Jesus is walking around talking about knowing God and healing people and talking about forgiveness and love your neighbour and all that other stuff. So where's, where's the tsunami? Jesus' answer to John, very relevant to us, and Jesus' answer to John is gentle. Here's what he says, Matthew 11, verse 4. Jesus replied, Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. If John had been reading his Old Testament, he knew exactly what Jesus was quoting. Jesus was talking about a part of the prophecy of Isaiah that talks about what would happen when the great king arrived. Here's what Isaiah says. And this is the passage that Jesus is quoting. It says, Isaiah 35 verse 5, Then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. And, and Jesus says, go and tell John, right? it's happening. What's happening? Well, lepers are being cured and the deaf can hear and the dead are raised and the lame can walk. And you notice in verse 5, the, the, the climax of it, it says... Um, 
uh, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. What it is, it's the word euangelion, the, the gospel is being taken to the poor. People are hearing the, the good news of the gospel. But it's the last sentence I want you to look at. See what Jesus says, blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. The stumble word, it's the word that we get the word scandal from, scandalizo. He says, what does it mean? Well, it means to um, uh, be offended or, or to give up on something. Right? And, and Jesus says to John, look, I know this isn't what you actually expected, and I know it's, it's different, and I know it's hard. You're in prison, but I've got this. Trust me. Now, I can't help but wonder, why did Matthew record John the Baptist's crisis of faith? I mean, it happened, yes, but why include it? I can't help but wonder whether Matthew realised, or God through Matthew, that one day some of Jesus' followers may... Have not have their expectations met. Things may not be the way they would have thought or expected. Because Jesus is asking more of John than we might think. John's in prison. Jesus would have seemed just like a kind of a dreamer to the religious leaders of his day. What had John not really understood? Well, Jesus, Jesus speaks about the kingdom of God all the time. I've counted, uh, did a search, I've counted... 80, that's eight zero different times that Jesus speaks about the kingdom of God. If you read the Gospels, every time, almost every time Jesus opens his mouth, it's about the kingdom of God. And what, what John hadn't understood, eventually the kingdom of God will see the recreation of everything, right? the judgment day, the recreation, but it won't start that way. It won't be a tsunami. What's, what we've looked at here is chapter 11. If you keep reading through to chapter 13... Jesus gives seven different parables about the kingdom of God. And he's saying it won't start huge. Well, let me show you. One of the parables, we can't look at all seven. One of the parables, the parable of the mustard seed, chapter 13, verse 31. I'll read it to you. He says this, He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed which a man took and planted in his field. Though it is the smallest of all seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds come and perch in its branches. If you just Google mustard seed parable, they've got a Google will come up with a whole lot of pictures, and the mustard seed grows to be uh, half the size of a house. And you can see how small it is. There's the parable. Right? Kingdom of God starts really small, will end up huge. But not only that, not everyone will be able to see it. And, sometimes, and when you do see it, well, let me show you, Jesus other parable about the, the kingdom of heaven. He says, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. And not everyone will be able to see the kingdom of heaven, but when you do see it, it'll be the most precious thing ever. He tells another parable about a, a pearl of great price. You give whatever you can to, to get that. When you can see what it means to live with Jesus as your king, when you do see what it means to enter the kingdom, most precious thing. In fact, the New Testament writers will talk about becoming a Christian as actually leaving the kingdom of the evil one and coming into the kingdom of Jesus. So the Apostle Paul writes to Christians in Colossae. He says, For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into 
the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the idea of being ransomed, the forgiveness of sins. So which is it? Uh, is the kingdom huge, right, so that it'll, just, it'll fill the world, right? or is it hidden so that so many people can't see it? Well, the answer is both. Now, both those things are true. Let me show you. Let, let's think about the mustard seed for a moment. Jesus speaks to a handful of people, even after the resurrection, begin with just, you know, just a few people, they can fit in a room. What's happened since? Well, Rodney Starks, an American uh, professor of the sociology of religion, 2015, he, uh, he wrote a book, pretty much the triumph of faith is just a book full of statistics. If you like statistics, and statistically some of you will like that, um, you, you may like this book, but it, what it is, is this, the, wow, oh, that's a big sentence to say statistics about four times in a sentence. Uh, um, we'll have a go. It's the statistics of um, the, the Gallup World Polls. Uh, Gallup, the Gallup polling organisation runs polls in 160 countries around the world. Sadly, the Chinese government won't allow them to operate there, so that's a big gap. But they ask questions about different social, political and religious beliefs of people. Here's a summary of the Gallup World Poll thing about faith. They estimate the nominal religious affiliation um, for Christians around the world, excluding China, is about 2.2 billion people. Now, what does that mean? In census generally, or up to 2016, about half of Australia says that they're tick-the-box Christian, but obviously not heart, heart religion. So what do they do? Well, they drill down a little bit further and asked. Have you been to a place of worship in the last week? In other words, are you attending a church, which becomes a more meaningful figure anyway? That then halves and becomes there's still one, over 1.1 billion people around the planet who are meeting to worship Jesus. So we meet here, there's a group of us here in the room, there's literally a billion other people today meeting around the planet uh, to worship Jesus. And it's not just that the number is stagnant, the number is growing. Not in the, what you might call the Western world, okay, uh, but in the global south. Philip Jenkins, who is uh, a professor at the same university as Rodney Stark, or he was, wrote a book in 2002 called The Next Christendom, The Coming of Global Christianity. Now it's 2002, but I'll show you a more recent quote on that. But listen to what he says about the growth of Christianity around the world. Uh, in the same year, he was interviewed in an Atlantic magazine. Here's a quote from the interview about the book. He says this, We are living in revolutionary times. Worldwide, Christianity is actually moving toward supernaturalism and neo-orthodoxy, and in many ways towards the ancient worldview expressed in the New Testament. What do the numbers look like? In the global south, the areas we often think, uh, think of primarily as the third world, huge and growing populations, currently 480 million in Latin America, 360 million in Africa, and 313 million in Asia, compared with 260 million in North America. Uh, and the numbers continue to grow. In a better term than the third world is to call it the global south, South America, Africa, and parts of Asia. 
In 2014, uh, he was interviewed by Christianity Today, and here's an interesting quote or an interesting response to his book. He says, I received all sorts of good reviews, but the best review was in Washington, D.C., from a wealthy Episcopal lady. She said, I've read your book. It's absolutely wonderful. But you've told us all about this new kind of Christianity exploding around the world. All these hundreds of millions of new Christians. They're so passionate. They're so devoted. It's like the New Testament. Tell me, Professor Jenkins, as Americans, as Christians, what can we do to stop this? (laughs) Now, uh, it just goes to show you can be a member of the church and not be in the kingdom. I would put money on the fact this lady's not. Now, I don't know if Professor Jenkins wrote back to her... But if he did, I think what he should have said is, lady, you will not stop this. This is unstoppable. Or here's another one from uh, the Washington Post, uh, 2015. You think Christianity is dying? No, Christianity is shifting dramatically. A quote from uh, Michael, sorry, from Wes Granberg Michelson. He says this, In 1980, more Christians were found in the global south than the North for the first time in a thousand years. Today, the Christian community in Latin America and Africa alone account for a billion people. Um, if you want the really up-to-date research, if you just Google Pew, P-E-W, research, growth of Christianity, you can see the massive numbers that are happening um, around the world. So what about Australia. Well, in Australia, I think it's fair to say that nominal Christianity has disappeared. In my lifetime, it's gone. By that, I just mean turn up, tick the box, or, you know, it's just, yep, um, I, I turn up at church occasionally because that's the right thing to do, etc. That's basically gone. In the census, and I'm sure we'll see it in the later census, the no religion figure is growing, and that'll be partly because of the way that the census was carefully designed with no religion at the top of the column, and no box to tick to say Christian. That's another story. I think it's more accurate to say that Christendom has disappeared. And by that I mean, by Christendom I mean that Christianity is a default religious position of different institutions, government. Christianity is the assumed chaplain to society. That's gone. Why has this happened? By the way, I can say, my little theory is I think the number of genuine, hand-on-heart, true believers and followers of Jesus is much the same in this country as it always was. It's nominal Christianity or Christendom that have disappeared. Why? Lots of different factors. Roy Williams, uh, who became a Christian later in life, is a very accomplished lawyer, written a book called Post-God Nation about this decline. Uh, It's a huge book uh, and well-researched. If you want to get it get that information quickly, Roy gave a very good lecture in 2015 uh, called The Secular Juggernaut. Um, If you just Google Roy Williams Secular Juggernaut, you'll find it and you'll get most of the book in an hour. It's interesting, of the many factors he lists, the number one, number one by a mile, is the wealth and prosperity that's happened in our nation in the last 80, 100 years. It's kind of an irony, really, that That wealth and prosperity particularly comes from the Judeo-Christian heritage of our nation and it's that wealth and prosperity that means we're walking away from God. 
And so is our nation walking away from God, our judgment on God or God's judgment on us? Now, the kingdom of God's not the same as the church, uh, and yet Jesus' church is the beating heart of, of what he's on about. Um, even in Australia, where nominal Christianity is disappearing, there are still, the kingdom of God still moves forward, and people still come to know Jesus as their king. It's just, you won't read about it in the, in the mainstream media, etc. Let me give you just, just one example. A couple of weeks ago, we... Um, uh, promoted one of our mission partners, Geneva Push. Now, Geneva Push is a network set up about 10 years ago to help start new churches. Okay. Many of our, let me go back, many of our mainline churches, as I said, are either growing really old or disappearing. Why? Look, let me just, I'll just blunder in. Here we go. Why? I'll tell you why, because so many churches have this. They've been prepared to change the gospel message and get rid of the kind of, you know, the, the sharp, uncomfortable bits about the message. They've changed the gospel message but not been prepared to change their culture. If you, if you change the fundamental message of the gospel and you won't engage with the culture, okay, the horse is dead. Get off. Um, now, new churches that will preach the gospel and engage with culture will thrive generally. Geneva Push is about helping new churches get started because new churches reach new people. There's Scotty Sanders. And if you look on the right, that would be Toby Neal. Because Vine Church, you've heard of Geneva Push? You're sitting in it. No, no. Uh, Vine Church was one of the very first churches that that network helped to get started. In fact, I could say, Vine Church, you are the jewel in the crown of the Geneva Push network. So there's Scotty Sanders uh, and Tom, who's leading church today here. Tom works with Geneva Push as well. Uh, now, I rang up Derek Hanna, uh, who's there, what's second on the left. Uh, Derek also works with Geneva, and asked him, OK, well, you've been doing this for 10 years or so. What's happened? How many churches have you helped get started? Answer, by the end of the year, 115. How many people are attending those churches? Best estimate? Nine to 10,000, okay? But has anyone become a Christian through these new churches? Best estimate, around 2,000 people. Now, you, there's all sorts of things like this happening uh, as the kingdom of God moves forward. You don't change the gospel, you engage with culture, God will bless it. So, uh, can you see the mustard seed? Can you see, uh, sorry, the mustard seed is growing. Uh, can you see the treasure in the field? Do you understand what it means to have Jesus as your king? Uh, when, when Jesus calls us to follow him, he'll say, seek first the kingdom. Now, let me just have a little, if I may, a little word from the sponsor. The kingdom of God and, and the local church aren't exactly the same thing, but the local church is the beating heart of what Jesus is on about. And he says, seek first his kingdom. How can you serve or, or help or make Vine Church work so people can hear about Jesus? Uh, I, I was thinking about that, so I rang Toby. And as always, Toby and the other pastors are really organised. He said, okay, well, there's a number of ways. got the whole website thing happening. Let me, let me show you. Depending on your gifts and opportunities, if you serve Jesus, how are you able to help here and, and make this all work so people can hear about 
the life, love and freedom of Jesus. There's all sorts of opportunities to serve or, uh, or to volunteer. And if you go to vinechurch.com.au slash serve, I had a look, there's all sorts of different options. I think Toby just said there's something like 60 people have worked to make church work here. Um, all sorts of different opportunities, etc., depending on your, on your gifts. Uh, now, you may actually have opportunity, though. Uh, where are we going here? Next one. There we go. Uh, an internship is the idea of being able to keep your day job and do one day a week working with Vine Church to take the gospel to people. It'll be an opportunity to learn a whole lot, to kind of, if you like, look, un- look under the hood of how it all works. And uh, you can, that's, um, you know, slash interns. That's the idea of an internship one day a week for one year. But it may also be that some of us have the, the gifts and the opportunities to work full-time in gospel work, to be able to devote all those extra hours to taking the gospel to people. Uh, and that's, uh, there's an opportunity to do like an apprenticeship, there we go, uh, MTSN for Ministry Training Strategy. The idea of being, doing like a two-year apprenticeship full-time. Um, it doesn't mean keeping people away from the church with sharp objects. That, that logo could probably, ha! They, that logo could probably use a bit of, re, you know, bayonet practice to keep the church safe. No. Um, but it may be that you have the gifts, the opportunity to be able to do this full-time. And that would be great if you can. Now, there's not three classes of Christians, obviously, but it does depend on life situation, opportunity, and how God's gifted you. And if you would like to be involved in that, especially the internship or the ministry training strategy, Toby would love to buy you a coffee. Okay, there you go. All right, let me sum up. There's still two more weeks of this, uh, this great series going on. Let me, let me correct the title, if I may. Okay. I think we do live in a post-Christendom society, a post-Christendom society, which may, I think in a way, is the severe mercy of God because churches need to be lean and hungry, not soft. But the good news is we don't live in a post-Kingdom of God world. Will you pray with me? Lord God, we thank you that you sent your king into the world and we ask please that we might see his kingdom clearly, to see people coming to know him as their Lord. We ask please to have mercy on this nation as we pray your kingdom come for Australia as well. And please show us how we can seek first that kingdom and serve the Lord Jesus. And we ask this in his name. Amen.